now Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 8, page 426 in the Blue Church Bibles, and Suzanne is going to read the Bible for us tonight. Thanks, Suzanne. So when Samuel grew old, um, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they are rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his grounds and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes... You will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us, and then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that, the people said, he repeated before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to Israelites, Everyone, go back to your own town. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, It's good to be uh, opening up God's Word with you together again. Uh, Just a reminder that at the end um, of the sermon, there will be a time for question and answer. Um, So if you have any questions about the passage uh, or anything about the sermon that you've just heard, feel free to jot them down and ask that at the end. Uh, Also, can I please ask you to keep your Bibles open because we've got a lot of ground to cover uh, and I'll be flying through the text and I'll be missing a lot of the details. Also, I'll be pointing out some of the key verses in the text, so please follow along with me. Um, And one final thing is that can I encourage you, um, after this sermon, go home and uh, reread these five chapters for yourselves because I'll be skipping a lot of the detail. Um, It'll be good uh, if you can spend the time and and reread it um, and pick up on all the stuff that I might have missed in the sermon. But before I start, how about I pray? Father God, we thank you so much that you have given us your word that reveals who you are to us and also reveals uh, who we are. And so, Father, as we 
uh, look into uh, this passage um, of your people asking for a king? Will, will, will you uh, t- uh, teach us what you have to teach us and transform us through this? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure why I clicked on this video, but when I did, I couldn't stop watching it. So this was a compilation of Aussie dashcam crash footage, uh, 40 minutes non-stop of clip after clip of cars behaving erratically on our Aussie roads, uh, changing lanes on motorways without checking blind spots, people running red lights, drivers not paying attention, and, and crash after crash after crash. I could feel my heart rate increasing as I watched it. But to make things worse, I watched this video just before a long road trip to Brisbane. Uh, I remember sitting behind the wheel, going up the F3, and I kept getting all these flashbacks of these scenes, and I kept wondering who was going to swerve into me at any moment. And after when I got to Brisbane, I suddenly realized I wanted a new car. I want one with all the new safety gadgets. Uh, And so I started reading up on ANCAP safety ratings, on auto emergency braking technology, and I could start listing out all the brands which offered all the best safety equipment. All of a sudden, I felt like I needed to have this security blanket in my life. And without this technology, I, I felt exposed. I wonder if you've ever felt like this. Uh, that you feel vulnerable, exposed, unsafe, and you suddenly realize you need X, Y, or Z to, to make you feel safe again. Well, in 1 Samuel chapters 8 to 12, we'll be seeing how Israel suddenly feels very vulnerable. And we'll see what they think will bring them security. So now as we come to chapter 8, let's recap. Samuel has just led uh, Israel in prosperity and peace. But the problem is Samuel is old now and the problem of this leadership crisis comes up again, the leadership crisis that we saw at the beginning of the book. And just like in chapter 2, Samuel's two sons, they pervert justice, verse 3. So all the elders gather around Samuel demanding change. Now at first that seems very reasonable, doesn't it? Your sons you have appointed, they're not like you. They don't walk in the same way you do, Samuel. We need a better solution. There's nothing wrong with this request. Until you hear their proposed solution. Verse 5. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Do you see the solution? The solution is a change in the structure of government to be under a monarchy. Now, you might ask, how is that going to fix the problem of unrighteous leaders? Uh, to, To make things worse, while the structure of kingship does inherently bring some sort of stability in that kingship gets passed down naturally and clearly down the lineage of the king, Uh, They they no longer have to wait for random judges to be appointed by God to, to save them like we've seen in the book of Judges. And so while the kingship does offer some sort of stability, do you see the irony here? This very governing structure relies on the thing that they've been complaining about in the first place. Biological succession doesn't guarantee good leadership. We've seen that twice now. First with Eli's two sons in the beginning, and now Samuel's two sons, chapter, chapter 8. 
And yet this is exactly what the people propose will fix the solution. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, What's more, they they want a king so that they could be like the nations around them. Uh, Compare that to God's command in Leviticus 19.2, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or Deuteronomy 14.2, They are not to take on the pagan practices of those around them, because, verse 2, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. Now, holy in these contexts means to be different, to be unique, to be separate from those around them. Israel was supposed to stick out like a sore thumb. The the people of God were to observe God's commandments, which were so radical, so full of justice and righteousness, that when they are lived out, that all the nations around them would witness this and see God's wisdom and see God's ways put into practice. But no, we we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different for God. We want to fit in. We want all the latest structures like all the rest of the nations around us. And Samuel brings these uh, words, these requests to God in verse 6. God simply says, listen to them. God is going to give them what they ask for. But this doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. Because in verse 9, God tells Samuel to solemnly warn them. This is a very serious warning. Because this is what the king will do. He will be a taker. Six times in verses, from verses 11 to 17, he will take. He will take your sons, your daughters, your fields, your vineyards. He will take your grain, vintage, your servants. And the list keeps going on and on. Your treasured sons, they will be used as pawns in his battles. All your treasured possessions, your stuff, used to make his life luxurious, to make him rich. And to top that off, verse 17, you will end up becoming his slaves. And so as, as bad as Samuel's sons were described as perverting justice, this list that we've just seen, it's far worse. It will be so bad, in fact, that you will cry out for relief from this king. You will cry out just like you did when you were slaves in Egypt, just like you have done when the Philistines came to oppress you. The only difference this time around is that Yahweh, your God, will not listen to you. Verse 18, he won't answer you. You will cry out, but because you have been warned, you have been warned about the consequences If you go down this path, you will bear the consequences of your actions. This deal seems so much worse than the current situation that they're facing. So maybe they'll reconsider. Verse 19. No, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go before us and fight our battles. And so once again, God says to Samuel in verse 22. Listen to them and give them a king. Can you feel the sad irony here? The covenant people of God refuse to listen to God. The God who twice has listened to their request and granted them what they wanted. 
And now this is the part where we're really going to start flying through the next three chapters. So please keep your Bibles open and, and follow along. But in these three chapters, we see how God will fulfill Israel's wishes. Starting from chapter 9, we see that God is now working behind the scenes to make it all happen. We're immediately taken to the tribe of Benjamin, chapter 9, verse 1, and we are greeted with this rather mundane story. I mean, we meet Saul, this handsome, extraordinarily tall man, standing a head taller than everyone else. But from verse 3 to verse 14, we get this whole list of unexciting details. Saul's father loses some donkeys. Saul takes a servant to look for them, but they couldn't find them. So Saul decides to go home so that his dad won't worry about him. Oh, but wait, Saul's servant doesn't want to give up yet. He knows of this special man of God who might be able to help them. But Saul says, oh, but we've got nothing to give the man. And at that moment, the servant takes out some silver and says, not to worry, we can give them this. As we read through all these details, it just seems a little bit unnecessary, a bit random perhaps. But it actually isn't, because... In verse 15, we're told what's really going on here. See, the day before, Yahweh had revealed to Samuel that he would send Saul to him. He would be the one handpicked by God to rule over Israel and save them from the Philistines. And so behind all all these mundane details of the story is God himself orchestrating everything from the lost donkeys to the servant who had heard of Samuel who just so happens to have some spare change in his pocket, even while Saul has none. A king isn't going to appear out of nowhere. God isn't merely going to allow some king to come along and rule over them. But God is actively working behind the scenes, hand-picking for his people the king that they have asked for. And so... After Saul meets Samuel, he is told that he will be made king. And now, God starts to work publicly to show that he is answering their request. Chapter 10. After confirming that God had chosen Saul by anointing Saul with oil, we come across another extensive run sheet of events. Only this time, Samuel is predicting everything that will happen to Saul that day. Again, it's the details which grab our attention. He will meet two men near Rachel's tomb in verse 2. They will say the donkeys have been found and his father is now worried about Saul. In verse 3, he will meet three men at Tabor. Even what they carry is predicted. Three young goats, three loaves of bread, a skin of wine, and some of this bread they'll offer to Saul. In verse 5, Saul is to go to Gibeah. Some prophets with musical instruments will be there prophesying, that is, speaking the words from God. In verse 6, God's Spirit would come powerfully upon Saul, and Saul himself would prophesy with them, transforming him into a different person. And Samuel promises Saul then that once all these things happen, God will be with you. He is to do whatever his hands find to do. God is now proving to Saul that God has chosen him as the king that the people have wanted. And so sure enough, in verse 9 onwards, Saul leaves and all these signs are fulfilled that day down to the last detail. 
And when the Spirit of, of God comes upon Saul, he is seen prophesying. And he is so transformed that those who know of Saul, they wonder what on earth happened to him. And see, now it's the people of God who will begin to see that God is at work to give them the king that they've asked for. Verses 17 to 20. Samuel summons all Israel together, grouped by the tribes and clans. And tribe by tribe, clan by clan, household by household, Samuel casts lots. Casting lots is a a way of determining God's will back then in the Old Testament. And, And as Samuel casts lots, he hones in on the tribe, clan, the family of the chosen king before finally revealing Saul as the one who would, who would rescue Israel. From God foretelling every last detail of Saul's journey home, from the display of the Spirit's work in Saul, and now, through the casting of lots, it is clear, there is no doubt now, that God's chosen king is Saul. But in verse 27, we come across some resistance. Because not everyone supports Saul as their king. Some ask, how can this fellow save us? And they despised him. And so the question is, can Saul actually deliver the goods? Is he actually going to save them from Israel's enemies? Well, we find out very soon. Because in chapter 11, we're introduced to Nahash the Ammonite king. And Nahash is this ruthless and barbaric enemy of Israel. After besieging the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead until those in the town have lost their will to keep resisting, and they try to surrender, they offer themselves up to be Nahash's slaves. But Nahash doesn't want a bunch of slaves. He wants to completely humiliate them. He demands to gouge out the right eye of every single person of the town. What he wants to do is to disgrace God's people, verse 2. And so surely this is when the mighty king of Israel hears their distress and comes swooping in to save them, right? Well, not quite. The people of Gilead simply say to Nahash in verse 3, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers out to Israel. And if no one comes to rescue us, then we will surrender. Are you kidding me? It doesn't even sound like you have any hope that anyone would come. There's no mention of this mighty King Saul whom you've just anointed and crowned king. Let's just send people all over the place and let's see if anyone turns up to save us. And so you might ask, where is Saul at this critical moment? Well, in verse 5 we find out. Saul, the tall, handsome warrior king of Israel, he's farming. And it's only as he comes home from his farming, from his field, that he hears his town weeping about what's happening in Jabesh Gilead. And only then does he ask and find out about this situation. See, this kingship thing hasn't exactly gone to a great start, has it? But then we need to pay attention to what happens next. Because in verse 5, after Saul hears of the situation in Jabesh Gilead, the Spirit of God once again comes powerfully upon Saul. And he burns with anger, and the Spirit kicks the king into action. He demands all Israel to unite together under himself, and all Israel does indeed come together. And we get 330,000 men standing together, ready to strike at the enemy. 
the last time we saw this many of Israel's men standing together, united, was in Judges chapter 20. Do you remember that? When all Israel came together to destroy Benjamin, one of their own tribes. But now Saul, he unites Israel to save one of his own cities. And it works. From verses 9 to 11, Saul hatches this plan to outwit the Ammonites. And just when they least expect it, just before the break of dawn, they descend upon the camp of the Ammonites and slaughter them. It's a total victory. And so it looks like the kingship of Saul has been vindicated, right? Saul is able to save Israel from her enemies. And in verse 12, the people see this vindication. And some of them say to Samuel, Who are those who dare to question Saul's reign over us? Turn them over so we can execute them. But what does Saul say? Verse 13. No one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. And you know what? Saul is absolutely right. He rightly identifies that it is Yahweh, their Lord, who has saved Israel, not himself. Because right from the very beginning, in chapter 11, this whole kingship thing looked as though it might not have happened, it shouldn't have even happened. It made zero difference. The people had no hope of rescue. They didn't even bother going to ask for the king's help. The king was off farming somewhere. And so what happened? What was the defining moment which turned the entire story around? It's verse 6, isn't it? It's the spirit of Yahweh coming powerfully upon Saul. That's what kicks Israel's salvation into action. And so yes, Saul did bring victory. But it was really the God who was directing everything behind the scenes and within Saul. That's what brought the salvation of Israel. The story reads more like it was in spite of Saul's kingship, not because of it, that they were saved. Now at this point we might think, hold on, I thought this kingship thing was meant to be a bad deal for them. What's going on? Now we don't have time to look into this, but all I can say is, 1 Samuel is a long book, and we've got the rest of the book to see how this kingship will pan out. But even in the last three chapters that we've read, we see tiny hints here and there that perhaps this King Saul isn't the king that you might want. But again, I'll have to leave that for you to go home and read uh, in your own time. But for now, but for now, the people have gotten what they wanted. They've gotten the king. And through this king, they have been rescued from their enemy. And so that means it's time for Samuel to step down. But before he does, he gives them a history lesson in chapter 12. A history lesson about Israel's rebellion against God. So chapter 12, verses 6 to 11, he recounts that it is, of course, God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. That's how it all began. But time and time again, they forgot God even when they had inherited this promised land from God. And each time they rebelled, God would deliver Israel into the hands of their enemies. And each time when that would happen, they would suddenly remember God again and cry out to God for help. And each time, God would send a judge to come and rescue them. Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. Rinse and repeat, this cycle just keeps going on and on. Except this time, this time round in verse 12, when Nahash, king of the Ammonites, threatened Israel, 
they do something even worse. Because they say, no, we want a king to rule over us. Instead of crying out to God, they ask for a human king instead. Now hold on a minute, because did you get that? Did you get that? Because finally the true nature of their request comes to light. At the beginning of chapter 8, the people make this big fuss about Samuel's sons being not, not living up to the righteousness of their father. And they say, oh, we need righteous leaders. But in reality, what they wanted was protection against Nahash. And they think that a king is what's going to give them this security. And so can you see how, how big of a rejection of God's kingship is here? Because Israel had a king all along. It was God. But they never treated God as their king. It never even occurred to them that God was their king. But all along, it was God who won all their battles. It was God who rescued them every single time. And now Israel is saying, no. A king with a big army, that's what we need to win battles. And so one commentator calls this political idolatry. Although they're not replacing God with uh, another foreign God, they're still replacing God with something else. This, in this case, a, a governmental structure, a person and his military expertise. They are trusting in the instrument which God can use rather than the God behind the instrument. For the last few months, I've been seeing a Christian counsellor to help me manage uh, some of my personal anxieties. Uh, the goal of this counselling was that when I do start work in July, I, I hope to become more effective, to avoid burnout and, and to be available more to serve. And a couple of weeks back, as we were wrapping up our time together, the counsellor told me to list out all the strategies that I could put into use uh, when I found myself being anxious. And so I did that. I, I, I listed a dozen or so uh, ways that I could pause and, and think about to help me calm myself down. And as I looked uh, at the list, I was quite impressed. I thought, wow, I, I can do this. I do have it in me uh, to manage my anxiety. And I was quite proud of myself. But you know what the problem was? Later on, when, when I scanned through the list, I, I realized something was missing. It was missing God. Prayer wasn't anywhere on that list. Meditating on the truths of the gospel wasn't on the list. Surely these things would help me if I'm anxious, right? But I felt so confident in these very practical and very useful steps. I mean, they've they shown themselves to be useful in the past, but I relied so much on them that I somehow squeezed God out of the picture. My problem was that my confidence was in the instrument rather than in God who might use the instrument or not use the instrument to help me. And so I wonder, what kind of man-made structures and strategies and instruments are we tempted to trust? To trust so much that it squeezes God out of the picture. Maybe it might be this killer ministry strategy, a rigid way of doing things which has proven so successful in the past. So effective that success is sort of taken for granted. We don't need to ask God for, for blessing anymore. Or maybe there's some sort of claims to uh, guarantee some sort of personal security in our lives. 
the most comprehensive health insurance, a stable career, a solid super account, the, safe, the latest safety tech in a car, whatever it might be. These are all wonderful things. But the problem is when we've seen how often they work, that we put all our trust in that. And we think those are the things that are absolutely necessary for our future to be secure. That if we ever imagine ourselves not having any of these, we, we start to panic. Because we, we start to think that these things are more important to us rather than the God behind it who may or may not use these things to save us. Now this type of idolatry, it's, it's very subtle, isn't it? But today, it's been laid out in such a raw and stark way. And so we need to uh, pause and take stock and think about what areas of our lives have we stopped trusting God in for security? In what areas have we outsourced it to something else or someone else? Something a bit more tangible than this invisible God that I can't see. Now the story doesn't end here. Because when the people finally realize their sin, and they rightfully become afraid in verse 19, Samuel has these wonderful words to say. Verse 20. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. These are powerful words, aren't they? Do not be afraid. Because God has shown himself not only, to, not only to be a God that is to be feared, but God is a God of grace and mercy as well. The God who gives us what we don't deserve. Don't be afraid. Turn back to God. Serve only him from now on. And so the question is, why, why shouldn't they be afraid? What's going to be different this time around compared to all the times in the past when the people just fall back into this pattern of sin again and again and again? Well, it's because in verse 22 it says, For it is for the sake of his great name the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. And so even as Samuel commands the people to turn back to God, to turn away from their idolatry, to obey God's commandments, their future security is not based on their performance. It's not based on their ability to somehow muster the will and strength to break out of their constant cycle of sin. And we've seen that today, haven't we? While Israel sinfully demands a king for security, God uses their sinful request to deliver them from their enemies. God can even bring salvation through the sin of his people. And so security must completely rest on God himself. That he would act for his own namesake. God is committed. He will be faithful because he will be faithful to the promises he has made. It's in him himself. And isn't that a nice slice of the gospel message that we know so well? Our hope of everlasting life doesn't ultimately rest on our own efforts. Yes, we need to follow God. We need to put our hope in Jesus to honor him and to obey him. Yes, but ultimately, our security rests only in the promise, in the promise of God having already been fulfilled, of Jesus having come already to take away our sins for us, securing for us that one day we might see God face to face without any judgment, without any punishment for our idolatry and our sin. God, 
the unmovable, unchangeable creator of the world. He is the one that secures the future of his people. God's people are not secured based on their righteousness, not on any human king, not on any political, sociological, or material instrument. Security can only come from God. And so let us turn to God in our time of need. Let us be secure in Him, knowing that He is our ultimate King, who directs all to bring to completion everything in His wonderful plan. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we often commit idolatry by replacing you with something else that we think is more effective in achieving our ends. Father, please forgive us. We pray that this reminder today that we've, listened, that we've heard, we pray that we will keep our eyes fixed on you, that we will keep only trusting in you for help. And we thank you so much that you are a God of mercy, that even our sin does not stop your, 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 your plans of saving us from coming true. So, Father, we want to thank you for that and ask that you would continue to allow uh, us to, to keep trusting you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.